Welcome, friends. You're listening to What's the Point Podcast, a podcast of Waypoint Church. My name is Eric Weiner, and I'm joined in studio today by my good friends and fellow pastors. This, I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint. I'm Lawrence, and I love the fact that we're calling this place a studio, so I'll take it. I just figure wherever we are, it's it's a studio. Works for me. The we're fact socially that it, distanced in our sanctuary, but it's Waypoint Studios, live <laughs> from Durham, North Carolina. Right? Yeah, Studio 6804. I like it. Live from Farrington Road. I like it. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we we are adapting. We're... we're nomadic in our in our podcast studio but uh maybe maybe one day we'll have one maybe one day we'll have our our own space where it's designated just for that but uh until that day it's our studio this hey, is we, where we graduated at. we have 50 dollar mics now we went right. from using the 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 mics that just come with your laptop to the 50 dollar mics so we're we are we are moving we're big up time. in the world we're big, big time. time snowball yeah, so uh, this, is, this is the much-anticipated question and response episode. This is actually, uh, I'm calling it question and response. Usually people will say Q&A. It's a lot, maybe they're more familiar with Q&A. I think Q&R is, is maybe more accurate. Don't want anybody to think that this is the end-all, be-all. This is like the absolute answer. Especially the types of questions we get. I don't want them to say this is the answer. Pastor Lawrence <laughs> is pretty much the Protestant Pope. So like his his answers are it's up there are up there. So it's like you know the Trinity, Pastor Lawrence. Yeah, we don't we don't want to get too high or too low on ourselves, but right. maybe maybe we err one way or the other. But um, yeah, so we so thank you for those who sent in questions. These are these are some awesome questions, some really challenging questions, uh, some really thought provoking questions, some pretty heady theological questions that, that we're trying to navigate uh, today and and trying to trying to work through together. And so. Um, I figured, and, and this is also, uh, for those listening, this is our last episode of 2020. And so we do, we do want to try to end on a, a bit of a, a high note, a, a, a note of encouragement and hope. So uh, we, we hope that we, we do that. But uh, to, to kind of start out, figured we'd, we'd give a little bit of a softball. So this question was actually turned in to us as, as more of a, uh, a, a joking kind of question. The, the original question was, can you defend why Matthew is the best book of, of uh, the Bible? But I figured we, we could... Written uh, by a, the question was written by a guy named... Matthew. It, it may or may not have been written by, <laughs> okay. by a guy named Matthew. I, I'll neither confirm nor deny that. I think it was. But uh, guys, what, what's one of your favorite books of the Bible or one you go to often? So I was torn. I, I kept on going between the Psalms and the book of John. So yeah. those are the two I'm jumping between. But I'm going to go with John right now. Mainly it has the gospel. Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of hard to go away from the life of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of cheated. Moving along, Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, John, James, Revelation. So I, I kind of, I, like go, I, go, I go back and forth. <laughs> I go back and forth. I, I love God's word. Uh, it encourages me. But I definitely think that's, I, and I'd say I spend the most time in John. I think John has been the book that I just, just have to go back to over and over again. And, and I think the Sermon on the Mount. I spend a lot of time mm-hmm. in Matthew 5 through 7. And I feel like the commentaries of Matthew 5 through 7 are in James and in the end of Romans, Romans 12 through 15, I would say, are, you know, good places I spend a lot of my time. Yeah, so stay tuned. Pastor Pastor Daniel will give you his uh, his top sixty five ranking. <laughs> he leaves out just one, just one. He leaves out. Uh, you can read through it to see which one it is. See if you can spot it. But um, 
Yeah, I think so. For for me, one that uh, so I, I resonate with with what you guys are saying too, uh, but one that I go back to a lot, or maybe most frequently, and feel most familiar with is uh, the book of Ephesians, mm-hmm. or the letter of Ephesians to the Ephesians. Um, just this this, I mean, it's obviously it's a very short book of the Bible, but just the the, the gospel indicatives and the gospel imperatives, and just. Uh, this this contrast and, and learning about who we are in Christ and, and what the, what it means to then live out that reality uh, is is something that uh, studied pretty pretty in depth in college and it's just really really resonated and continues to to be a, um, a place of comfort for me as I, I go back to God's word. Well, uh, I know Song of Solomon, huh? <laughs> That's coming, guys. Summer of twenty twenty one. Yeah, look forward to it. Be excited. Yeah. So, uh, so again, that was uh, that was a good way to kind of uh, slowly transition into these these deeper, more heady questions, um, and even still, even even trying to to uh, ease our way into these questions. Thought we'd we'd start out with one that's more introductory to that even sets up some of the, some of the later questions we get. But uh, this first one is: Explain to us the difference between God's communicable communicable and incommunicable attributes so we're going with this starting with an easy one this is the easy one yeah this is the easy one all right well the idea of god's communicable and incommunicable attributes first explain what those are yeah what but those are basically the attributes of god characteristics of god um one being communicable mean being the ones that we can kind of relate to as human beings that we can understand that we can even practice ourselves the idea for example of justice and mercy of, of, of attributes of God that that are that we as human beings can understand, attain to, practice ourselves. The incommunicable ones are the ones where it just solely belongs to God alone. His omnipotence, His omnipresence, His omniscience. You know, by those, by those words I mean His all powerfulness, His all seeing, His all knowledging, His all knowing. Um, these are attributes that are not that are not able to be. Um, had and known by human beings, so is is incommunicable the ones that are just his and his alone. You mm-hmm. know, and when we talk about the idea of attributes of God, um, really people kind of classify the attributes of God in two main characteristics, characteristics or two main categories. I mean, one is his the idea of his greatness, and the other one's idea of his goodness, or other mm-hmm. in other words, his his characteristic of who he is um kind of like his holiness his greatness and others is like his attribute personality attributes like holiness and love and mercy so there's two kind of simple ways to understand and look at the characteristics or the attributes of god mm-hmm. yeah and i i think for me it's okay for us to dwell on the greatness of god just as greatness like we don't have to dwell on it to where it makes our head explode Mm-hmm. I, I bring this example up a lot, but one time I was, I was doing international student uh, Bible study at the Harvard Law School, but when a buddy brought his friend who was from MIT, so these are like just, you know, super smart people, and this guy, this international student from MIT, you know, got his PhD at like 17. He's probably top 20 smartest physicists in the world, whatever, and he, and he looks at me, and he's like, yeah, all the top math and, and physics professors would say, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. He's like, it's, it's at, once you get to the top of the universe and you just start like looking at math, deep into math, deep into physics, deep into the universe, you just realize you don't, what, that you don't know a lot and that there's more that you don't know than you do know. And I think that when we get into the greatness of God and when we think about these attributes that we can't comprehend, our head will explode. So it's okay to just think of them as awesome. Like to just say, it, it's okay to stop at 
God is just perfect in all he does and he's great and he's good but then in his love in his character and how he loves us and in in Jesus so for me just it's I think it's okay for me to just say read Matthew Mark Luke and John look at the character of Jesus and you can get everything you need to know about God through just studying Jesus and and studying God's character from the Old Testament getting us to Jesus so it's okay if you don't have to make your head explode you don't have to be at that super deep theological level to really understand God's greatness and just just dwell in it and enjoy it. So you're telling me I don't have to worry and fret over whether or not God can create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? No, but all the youth <laughs> kids, that's like a cool answer to, to ask when you're in like middle school youth group. Like, <laughs> right. And, and Lawrence is still riding high on that, that oh, question. Yeah. He's still, uh, it's still a question that he asks himself often, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I think if we dwell on those, we take away from the beauty of Christ and the beauty of God's revelation from Genesis to Revelation and the beauty of, of the covenant and the faithfulness of God and a God that can be known. So it, it's, it, we do need to fear God. It's interesting, like, he's our friend. He's our brother. You know, God is, Peter could talk to God face to face. Peter... John, James and John's mom kind of argues with Jesus. You could literally have an argument with God. At the same time, God spares you and sustains you and loves you and, and allows us to be in this relationship. So I think the fear of God, but also the knowability of God is is the beautiful thing about our faith. Like we can live in that tension because we have Jesus. And that's one of the beautiful attributes of God is you see that he wants to be known by his creation. You see that his revelation of himself in, in his word, um, through his prophets, um, but ultimately his ultimate revelation of himself through Jesus. He's saying, I'm unknowable, but here's how I want my creature, creation, my people to know me. So ultimately he came in the form of Jesus to be known. Yeah. So it's okay to dwell there. You don't have to make your head explode, but it is, but we also as God's people need to live in a fear that God is holy and perfect. Too. So there, there's this balance, but I, I believe that as the body of Christ, we can live in this balance and really just fall in love with Jesus. Yeah, so it sounds like on one level, too, you guys are saying, um, yeah, God God is really great. And to have big thoughts of God is a good thing. Um, but then to, to think that we can fully understand God, that's that's not something we can, I mean, even, you know, listen to you, Danny, to, to have even a thought of to stand at the top of the universe. Like, I mean, I don't even know if I've ever even scratched the surface of what that would even look like. But um, I definitely resonate with the more that I know, the more I realize that I don't know, that, that I'm more lacking in, in different areas like that. But then, um, you know, as we're thinking, as we're talking about these attributes of God and, and what God is like, who, who he is, um, and that we can know him, that we, and we want to know him. We want to know more of him. Um, you know, there, there are, maybe, maybe instead of making our heads explode, we can at least stretch out our minds a little bit here. So let's, let's keep going a little bit deeper. Question two. Um, and this, I think this part of the, what uh, comes at with this question is this idea that God is immutable, which means that he is never changing. So God is, God is the same always. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He will always be the same. And yet, all of these attributes that we're talking about, he, he's, he's always had. He's always been who he is. He is who he is, that God is. Um, That's his and, name, Yahweh. I yeah, am who I am. Yeah, yeah, I am who I am. And so, what does it mean for, for God to eternally exist in these communicable attributes, uh, specifically like 
justice and mercy, like you, you mentioned, Lawrence, for, for him to exist in these ways? Uh, and, and, and does he express these within the, the Trinitarian relationship, or does he need these uh, does he need creation? Does he need creation to be able to fully express himself? That's a good question. Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian, uh, distinguishes between the kind of the, what he calls essential divine attributes. And these are the attributes that existed uh, pre-creation and pre-time and space and in, in the, in the, the wholeness that is the Trinity. But then he calls non-essential or um, kind of the manifestation of some of the essential attributes that manifested itself after post-creation. Mm-hmm. You know, and so for example of that might be mercy. In and of itself, that is a post-creation kind of essential attribute of God. That is, we say He's a merciful God. That's one of His characteristics that we see in the Bible, right? But the idea, the question might be, well, how will He ever need to show mercy pre, um, pre? If there's no one who needs no mercy, mercy exactly. Because the Trinity is perfect in Himself, so there's no need for mercy exactly. inside the Trinity. Mm-hmm. But, but what we believe is that, it, that mercy is actually a manifestation of a, a more kind of overarching attribute of love. You know, mm-hmm. so he is love in the Trinity of itself. He has a characteristic of love, but we see mercy as a manifestation of that attribute in light of creation. So going back to the question, it seems like the root of this question, Eric, is that they really, the person who wrote it really wants to get to why does creation exist? Like if the Trinity was perfect, as Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Yeah, he's self-sufficient. He's yeah, why, why, why bring this mess in? And did God need the creation? So some people would say, well, if it exists, then God needed it. If God's perfect, then he needed creation. He needed and even needed the fall. Um, that's an answer we'll never get. Uh, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of dissertations from the medieval times until today of people studying this. Uh, there are theories. Most of the people who dig deep into this, Carl Barth, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Thomas Aquinas, had to write at least, I don't know, a whole shelf of books, probably you know, 20, 30,000 pages just to start dealing with this idea because there's qualifier on top of qualifier on top of qualifier. And if you're interested in reading those, they exist. Um, and there, there are, and they even go down different paths as they, as they build on these, you know, mostly Western post-enlightenment philosophies, they, they start saying, well, if, if this is true, then this has to be true. And this has to be true. And, and I think that ultimately the answer for us as believers is when Paul gives us Romans, Paul, you know, Romans one through 10, and really part of 11 is just saying, this is the big picture of God's plan. And then he ends the whole thing, the whole dissertation, with this statement. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So I, I believe that that's the answer, the ultimate answer to the question of why, does creation, why did creation happen, and even why does evil exist? God isn't going to give us the full answer. And I use this illustration. I call it the iPad illustration. If I give a seven-year-old an iPad, I just want my seven-year-old to use it. The seven-year-old doesn't need to know anything about microchips, about how data is processed, how Wi-Fi works. The iPad exists for the seven-year-old to use for education, for entertainment, for enjoyment. 
and there is a place where someone needs to know how to build the iPad, how to run it, how to fix it, but that's not the seven-year-old's place. The seven-year-old really just needs to use the iPad, and I believe that there are questions that are beyond anything that we will ever know. Going back to my original example earlier of, of my friend who did math and physics. So my short answer, well, that was kind of long, is <laughs> that God, we can't know this because we're not God. These are, but it's okay to explore it. But ultimately, we know creation exists and we know evil exists and we deal with it as it exists, just like that child deals with the iPad. You know, if that child would have been born 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, iPads wouldn't have existed. The microchip in that iPad would have been the same microchip that the army was using for missiles. You know, so, so the fact that we exist and evil is here and creation is here, God allows us to wrestle with it. But at the same time, he's like, trust me. And ultimately, the answer is we can look to Jesus and we can look to the love of God and his covenant faithfulness from Genesis to Revelation and look at it fulfilled in Christ. So that, that's how I generally answer that question. You know, when we think about the Trinity in and of itself being self-sufficient, you know, what we need to understand is this idea of the Trinity didn't need. God did not need anything, but mm-hmm. out of his desire, out of his will. Now, I know that people, the argument, well, if he desired, then he needed. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's mm-hmm. that semantical argument that one just can't ever fully come to any kind of true understanding or grasp of. But he chose and willed to create. Now, that could be out of his overflow of maybe that's the flow of his love. That of, of innate attribute of him, whatever it may be, his his innate attributes led him and decided that he decided to create, and in his creation, the manifestation of his of his innate attributes of God has led to these characteristics that, in light of of who he is, he relates to his people. So we get to enjoy him as God, as you know, even though the creation's broken, even though there's there is brokenness but even we we get to enjoy him as god enjoy his word and his his people just like when i hand that it what if i handed that ipad to the child and said hey you don't get to play with it you got to take it apart and rebuild all the microchips the the kid would that'd be miserable no seven-year-old would want to do that no Mm seven-year-old would even know how i just say you can play with it as long as you rebuild the whole thing and figure it out you know, and put it all, but all the pieces back together and get it connected and, and rebuild it. No, but I think that, but the seven-year-old gets to enjoy it. And I get, I believe that God wants us to be in his creation and enjoy it. It's okay to ask these questions, but at the end of the day, we will never know exactly why God created us and, and even how evil was brought into the creation. And, but we do know God's attributes and and we do get to enjoy him now and enjoy him forever. And we're thankful that he brought us into this. Yeah, it used to be in, in my day, we'd give seven-year-olds a book about if you if you gave a mouse a cookie, what would happen. <laughs> now we're giving seven-year-olds iPads and they're, they're left to uh, explore the universe. But um, yeah, I think those are those are helpful. And, and even, even just approaching it from different angles, the, the question of, um, I think on, on the one hand, Lawrence, you're, you're really hitting on this of... Uh, if God, if God has desires to express Himself in these ways, does that mean that He has, that He is dependent? And we, we're saying, no, He's not. Like that's not, that's not the case. That He's not in need of. He's still self-sufficient. He's still, He's still perfect and and uh, without need in and of Himself within the, the Trinitarian, the, the unity of the Trinity, uh, in that relationship. And then, Danny, you're you're hitting on this idea of creation and how how God relates to his his creation and and even why like why why do we even exist and why 
uh, and, and yet we get to experience the, the joy and, and beauty of, of God's uh, love and kindness and, and mercy and compassion toward us. That, uh, and, and so um, I think these are helpful things to, to think through. I, I appreciate your answers as you guys are helping us navigate some of these, these challenging topics and, and to, to keep going. Let's, let's keep going in this, in this same uh, idea of, or same line of thinking uh, similar idea, similar similar thought that another member of our church had as it relates to God's immutability. He's he's uh, the same. He's he ne- he never changes. But but what about as it relates to his teaching? What about as it relates to the things even that uh, what he taught in the Old Testament versus what Jesus is is Jesus correcting? Is he adding to? Is he changing in the New Testament? Um, so we see this uh, as we are reading the Bible reading plan. So this this uh, members reading the Bible reading plan, looking at. Uh, this was probably a few weeks ago, reading the Sermon on the Mount, and also what's what's taught in, in Deuteronomy 19, and he's talking about retaliation, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so, basically, it's saying the Israelites were commanded to repay an eye for an eye, or wrong for wrong, but Jesus is commanding to repay evil for good. And so, as it relates to this idea of God, God doesn't change, how, how do we hold these truths while in this example, it seems that God has given two opposing commands. That's a great how, question. How do we understand that? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people often ask, we need to understand Scripture and, and a good hermeneutic or a good understanding of how to understand and read Scripture. And we need Scripture to interpret Scripture. So taken out of context, you can always take a command out of Scripture by itself and think that it leads to this one way of thinking. You know, you can take one command that Jesus says and think that it leads to a fully pacifistic way of life. But you can take another thing Jesus says and things that leads to a completely different viewpoint. So we need to understand the yeah. whole context. Is, of Jesus, is Jesus the table flipper who's in exactly. the temple, or is he the mm. the mis- turn the other cheek, and give yeah, him turn the other cheek and, and give him your cloak? Yeah, which which Jesus, you know? And so it's not that there, it's different teachings. It's understanding there's different contexts and different ways of understanding the teachings. So, for example, even in this context where he, Jesus is giving this message, what he's refuting is not Old Testament law. He's refuting the Pharisee's way of interpreting and practicing it in an unjust manner. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is, he's not saying Old Testament law is wrong. As a matter of fact, later on, he talks about Jesus in the book of Hebrews and other places, says he's the fulfillment of the law, and he kept the law perfectly. So he didn't come to abolish it, he came to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. So he's not refuting law. And even in the old law, when the Old Testament law was actually made, it makes it sound like this is a harsh law. As a matter of fact, when the Old Testament law was made, it's, this was actually for justice. It was people uh, paying back crimes that were way too harsh. You know, if you stole my cattle, I'll kill you. And the, the Old Testament law was created in place to say, no, no, no. If you stole your cattle, then he needs to repay you for the price of the cattle. You don't take everything. And so the idea is, in this premise here, is that it's still the same teaching. People have a wrong conception that the Old Testament is all about hardcore laws and harsh statements and harsh punishments. Old Testament, as you've done the Bible reading plan, you've seen that it's full of mercy and justice and full of opportunities of forgiveness and grace and refuge. In the Old and New Testament, people think it's all about grace and all about mercy. No, it's full of justice as well. As a matter of fact, it showed ultimate justice by Jesus dying upon the cross. And so we need to understand that we need the whole realm, the whole um, all of Scripture to understand each other. And so in this teaching, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that the Pharisees' way of looking at this law was a manipulative way. It's an incorrect manner of how to treat. And then in, in this instance, this is how you treat in, in, in per, in, with people versus a, just a whole overall justice system. How do we react? We show grace and mercy and kindness to people. 
but there's not he's not making a statement on whether or not this should be uh, the way we do justice system in America or that in every situation that oh somebody hits you as a matter of fact later on in the Bible it has references where Jesus did not respond in this matter he actually said it was unjust and he called out somebody for striking him rather than turning his cheek in a literal fashion. Mm. So this is not meant to be interpreted in such a manner. We need all Bible, scripture to interpret scripture. Yeah. And I think that th- then that becomes a dilemma because what if there's a disagreement in the church on how to interpret mm-hmm. it? I mean, I've in the last year, I've heard different people say things from, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is just, there, there's grace. So we don't need, the Sermon on the Mount is even like the Old Testament law. Mm-hmm. And then there's other people saying that the Sermon on the Mount is the replacement of the Old Testament law. It's the new way of living. It's literally Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, which we're going to study soon, and Matthew chapter 5. It's like Jesus comes out of the wilderness, the 40 days, and he starts proclaiming this. Almost like this is the new Ten Commandments. This is the new law of Moses. You know, So even in that, there's going to be some disagreements in the church, but almost always i mean like 95 percent of the time when we come to a text that seems to contradict another text anyone who really sees the whole council of scripture any scholar who knows the original language as well and, and knows the context the historical context can see see it clearly and the church has been blessed by scholars from you know for the last 1900 years who have been fleshing this stuff out every once in a while there's a passage like the third heaven passage with paul or or something like that where we we don't have the other side of the conversation so we we gen we we generally don't try to answer the question fully we just say we don't have enough information to know exactly what paul means by that statement but most of the time when there's these seemingly apparent contradictions if you pull yourself out of our present context and thinking like a modern day American and put yourself in their original context and look at it in the light of all of scripture, like Pastor Lawrence said, you, you can almost always see, wow, everything lines up. This is such a congruent story of God's faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness from the beginning to the end. And it makes the Bible even more beautiful. Like it makes it more beautiful to see how it all fits together, even in these apparent contradictions. And the beautiful thing about the scriptures is that it doesn't tell you how to act in every single circumstance. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it doesn't tell you how to act. If somebody punches you in the face, how do you act at then? Well, in one circumstance, you might turn your cheek. In other circumstances, you might defend yourself. In other circumstances, you might press charges. Mm-hmm. In other circumstances, you might whatever it may be. These are all different circumstances that are all scripturally based to be okay and true. Right, but it doesn't tell you how to act at every single moment because one, that's an impossibility. We have an infinite number of possibilities and how to act in different time periods. But what it does promise is that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. It promises you that you have the script, whole counsel of Scripture. It promises that you have a community and a tradition and a faith to show you how to act and live in this, just such a way. Because if it told you how to act, one, it would never fit for all cultures. The Scriptures would never be right for all cultures of all times. And two, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. And so what we do is we trust that the Spirit is guiding us in how to interpret Scripture in the correct way at the correct time. Mm-hmm. We trust that the community of believers that God has placed us and Spirit has united us in is also going to help us in those determinations. And we trust that the counsel that God has given to the saints throughout the ages will help us also to interpret. And it, and it seems like as Jesus is dealing with the law and dealing with the Pharisees, everything is more about the motivation of your heart. Like than the actual what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's not what you're doing that violates God's principle, that God, God's principle, God's law. 
It's what's your motivation for doing it? Mm-hmm. And Jesus seems to bring that up going kind of along the lines of what you're talking about, Lawrence. Jesus seems to say, what's the motivation of your heart? And then in John chapter, you know, in 14 to 17, he talks about, I'm leaving, but I'm giving you the counselor. I'm giving you somebody better than me. Somebody, I, when the counselor comes, he can go out and be everywhere in all believers' hearts. Where Jesus physically could only be in one place at one time, he, so he could only teach those 20, 100 people in front of him where the counselor can go out. So, th- yeah, I agree, Lawrence. Thank you for helping us think about right. spirit and, and the teaching of Jesus leading us to be be people of the spirit. Because with the motivation the of the heart, you can go from turning your cheek in one instance and offering your cloak in another instance to flipping over tables and whipping people mm-hmm. in another instance. It's all, while very different actions, still motivated what's in the heart is what determines the righteousness of an action. Yeah. And I think I think that even gets at maybe more of the heart of the question too is, you know, we, we have these maybe competing teachings, competing ideas, but then we're real people living in real times and places and what does it look like to actually live out or embody these realities, these teachings and and to follow it? Like can I be if I'm harsh with how I deal with somebody, was that unchristian of me? Was it was I wrong to act in the way that I did? Can I never? Do I always have to be gracious, or do I always? Maybe people even think do I, that that means I'm always the one who's more passive in in the, the interactions or in the conflicts. And and how do I deal with those things? How do I how do I resolve these conflicts in a way that is Christian like or that is honoring to the Lord? And, I, and so I think I think as you guys are answering this, as you're talking about like what is the motivation of the heart? What is um, the, the the leading, the guiding of the Spirit, and in, in helping us navigate these things? And, and just uh, trusting within within the community of faith that, that we're we're living in, as as holding each other accountable, and as we're um, Seeking to understand God's word, I, I think these are these are helpful. Moving on in, in the Bible reading plan. So another as as we're rela- relating and interacting with the Bible reading plan, I, uh, this this person says that they've encountered multiple places where it talks about how the the situation will be so bad that people will eat their offspring. So we've seen that in Isaiah, and we've seen that in Deuteronomy. And so, what do we make of this? Yeah, this is a good question, um, and. It's it it it's very detailed in Deuteronomy 28, uh, where it says when you are about to go into exile, like it's it's fascinating that Deuteronomy predicts what will happen, and then it talks about how that even the women will eat the flesh, eat their own flesh, eat their offspring, eat the, which is disgusting. Um, and then in Isaiah 9, the famous passage that we've read four times this Advent, where it talks about you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God. At the end of it, it talks about how before they go into exile, um, it says, on the right, they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring, is how the NIV says it. The ESV says the flesh of their own arm, which this is one of those situations where the more, I I personally think it's better to read from the NIV and the New Living because I like changing the Hebrew idioms into modern English because I feel like most of us aren't Hebrew scholars. So just just getting you to read the Bible every day. So I, I like the translations that, trans, that would change the word arm, which is the Hebrew idiom to offspring. At the same time, I feel like here it's it sounds disgusting. And why would God say this? And what does this mean? And, and the, the short answer is, I won't go too long on this, is that this is hyperbole. It, meaning it got so bad that, that it would be like doing this. And there's a parallel passage to this, I mean a parallel idea in Isaiah 11, just a couple chapters down, 
where it talks about when things are really good, when, when, when the Messiah comes and makes things right. In Isaiah eleven seven, it says, um, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put his hand in the viper's net, you know, the, the cow and the bear will feed, the lion will eat straw like the ox. This is also hyperbole for when it's going to be really good. So most people don't think that we're to think that when the Messiah comes, when Jesus came, when Jesus came, we didn't see any uh, like lions eating grass and kids could still get bit by a, by a snake. So, I so, wasn't putting my hand next inside of Viper's So, <laughs> So both cases are showing the extreme of one or the other. So I would say that this is just saying in, in, in Hebrew hyperbole, it gets so bad it would be like that. It's not saying that, that it, I mean, these people wouldn't even eat pigs. So the last thing that they're going to be doing, so, it's, it's, so I, as we read the Bible, sometimes it's, it's good to remove ourselves and put ourselves in the original context and think about hyperbole, think about uh, idioms and, and how cultures use them. And it, we have a lot of English idioms that sound really weird to people raining outside. Raining cats of, and dogs. Yeah, raining cats and dogs. Uh, so that's a good one. So, so to comfort you in this, it's really bad. That this, it's saying that it's as dire as this, but it's also using Hebrew idiom, Hebrew hyperbole. So if you remove yourself from it, it's not saying that Hebrew women were actually doing this. It's, it's, it's saying that it got so bad, it felt like this was the only option. And the beautiful thing about it is it, it shows a concept called organic inspiration, where basically these are real people who are writing using real idioms of the day, using real mm-hmm. cultural uh, terms and ideas and concepts um, to illustrate their point. So God's using real people to write, but it's his, his divine words. Mm-hmm. You know, so if God was to write the scripture today, you know, using one of us to write the scripture, it'd be his words, but he'd use ideas and idioms like we would use today. You know, he would use ideas like... You know, restraining cats and dogs or whatever. So if we talked about the flood, that's what he would say. Mm-hmm. You know, and the people a thousand years from now might be like, did it rain cats and dogs? Yeah. What? You know? Yeah. So, so as you, you know, as we're, we're reading the Bible together as a, as a church family and we're doing this for over two years, but, you know, hopefully this is a, a habit that we continue to do together. We're, we're in the word. We're studying it. We're, we're wanting to know more. Um, you, know, you guys are talking, like, do we have to be, Bible scholars to understand what's happening here. Like, I mean, there's there's all these different genres. There's there's uh, different literary uh, techniques that are being used. I mean, do, do I how yeah. how how do I spot a Hebrew idiom? You know, all, all these different things. What what advice would you give to people as they're learning to navigate and, and understand these different Great types question. of of scripture? Yeah, good question. And I brought this up a couple times through in the past, but as because I'm the kind of the architect of the Bible reading plan and. I, th- I think a couple things. One is watch the Bible Project, you know, eight-minute videos on every book before you read the book. That's okay. Like, and then just read the book. Just read it and maybe re- write your questions down. But your all your questions aren't going to be answered on the first run through. And maybe some of the questions will be answered later. Like when you read that Deuteronomy passage and then you get to Isaiah, you're like, oh, in Isaiah it's actually happening what was prophesied in Deuteronomy. But then you also get to the, you know, two chapters later, you get to Isaiah, you know, after you read it in, in 9, and then you read it in 11, and you see, and you, you'll, you'll start to maybe pick things up. But it's okay to not understand everything the first round. Like, 
it's it's okay we and you can always going back to our original answer to the first two questions you can always go back to the goodness of god and jesus so if something seems like it god's not good because this passage you just read it's okay like probably if you knew it in its original context you'd still you would see god's goodness in it but it's okay to just just kind of absorb it and learn it it's like when i read shakespeare you know in ninth grade I mean, I remember we'd go home and read it at night and I had no idea what I just read. And then the next day in class, it made sense. But if I didn't have that exercise of reading it first, I think one of the Shakespeare plays, I remember not reading it, Hamlet or one of them, and then just reading the Cliff Notes. And I didn't really get it because I I jumped ahead to the answers before I had kind of struggled with the content itself. Mm -hmm. So my advice is, is just read it. And that's why I encourage New Living Translation because I think that that's the most the closest to modern english staying true to the original hebrew trying to in the original greek trying to bridge the gap and then got it's a lifelong process knowing god but god is good and we're here to tell you that so when you get to a place and you're struggling with is god good because i just read this the answer is yes he's still good you don't have to be a biblical scholar you don't have to have a phd in literature uh to get the goodness of god in scripture you know, I like it to back to Danny's illustration is that for some people, if you give my mom a, a Mac or an iPad, she might be able to maybe check her email, you know, but the more you know what you're doing with the computer, the more you're able to do process more and the more you're able to accomplish. And there's a beautiful things about scripture is that it's great. You can still use the, the computer for what it is and you can still use it in ways that are still beneficial for you. But if you know it more and you can study more, you know its, its uses better then you can accomplish more. And so I encourage everyone to be a Bible student. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. But I encourage everyone to be a Bible student because this is God's written word, his revelation to us. Um, after his revelation of who Jesus is, this is his written revelation of who he is to us. You know, so you can know and see his goodness, his attributes, his characteristics. But I truly believe that the more we study, the more we'll glean. And some of us ne- never glean. I'll never be able to glean what N.T. Wright was able to get. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be N.T. Wright. But God will speak to me in my own way, in his own way. Um, as I become a Bible scholar. So I really recommend everybody become a Bible scholar, but you don't, you don't have to be, I want everybody to be a studier of the word, but not necessarily a scholar, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you, say, you mean student. You student, want everybody you to be go. a student, but not necessarily a scholar. And, yes. and I'll give a couple examples. So my grandmother uh, didn't even graduate high school. She dropped out World War I, you know, just to start working, helping the family out. And she only had a King James Bible, and she just read it all the time and listened to sermons and went to the women's Bible studies at her church. And she became a Christian at 35. So she didn't even grow up in the church, barely Catholic upbringing. And by the time I knew her in her 60s and 70s, she knew everything about the Bible. And it was just from reading it over and over and over again and just getting to know it. Like, I'm sure she could have graduated high school. I mean, obviously her times were different, but I... It, and King James is hard. We, the NIV and the, the New Living and these translations are much easier. But she just read it so many times and she studied it and God used it. She really knew the Bible well and really benefited from her relationship with God as a student of the Word. And especially what we're blessed with nowadays. Like you were saying, the Bible Project, the, the, the videos. Yeah, so many resources There's available. so many resources. You know, and, and even this, like you guys can ask us questions, but there's just so many resources available that we really need to be students of the Word. Yeah, so as, as we're continuing to navigate these, these different questions and, and responding to them, um, you know, 
we don't have to be Bible scholars. We don't have to have PhDs, but this is a this is a question that is is actually asking more of go, going back into the more of the academic set, side of things and just thinking. We're we're not going to get into this is this is more of a recent theological debate that's been going on among uh, different theologians. But but we're just gonna we're gonna try to stay at uh, more at the ground level here. So I'm just gonna ask that this uh, this member asks in the Trinity. Has Jesus eternally submitted to God? And I'm going to answer this one quickly. There's a long answer and a short answer, but the the short answer is no, he is not. Um, We are what we would call Nicene Christians, meaning we go back to the Nicene Creed, the historic creeds of the church that say that, that explain the Trinity. It took a couple hundred years for the church to really hash this out and, and after you know Jesus's death and and they met together and they prayed through it and and God really gave us um, a clear doctrine of the Trinity and what eternal submission means is that while Jesus what this question means what the root of it is while Jesus was on earth the son submitted to the father and that's how we get the life of the, the actual incarnation Jesus coming to earth and his 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 death and his resurrection and his ascension. So there was a time when the Son submitted to the Father. Some theologians are trying to say that Jesus is eternally the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is eternally submitted to the Father. And the historic teaching of the faith is is the answer is no. And I'm just going to read a, a real short conclusion from a, an RTS professor. That's the seminary where Lawrence went, and I took some classes there. And he just says this, We give thanks that the Son of God submission to the Father is not eternal because this would mean in some way the divine will is divided. So the divine will is not divided. And if there is any submission, it's perfect submission to each other. There's no, like, I'm higher than you. We do give thanks, and this is the important part, that the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, the human, fully God, fully human, submitted to the Father as our head, for without his submission, we would not have experienced the result of the plan of salvation, which is knowing the Father by grace, even as the Son does by nature. So that's the best conclusion that I can come to. So um, historic teaching, we, we follow along with that, and we say that we thank God that Jesus did submit to the Father, but in Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit are in perfect submission to each other, perfect relationship with each other. And we praise God for that. So if you want to talk to me more, I know for some of you, you're like, I came more for the other questions. This one's way over my head. Uh, we're all here to talk to you more about that. But that's that's the uh, short answer. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I mean, uh, part, part of the discussion goes into is there, does, if there is this eternal submission, does, there, does that then mean there's this hierarchy within the, the triune relationship? And, you know, so. Uh, and we'd say it's dangerous to start thinking in that way. Right, right. And so, yeah, yeah, if you have more questions, feel free to contact Danny at waypointrd.com. Um, so moving on, uh, this is a, a question as it relates to uh, testing the Lord. And is it okay to test the Lord? Is it ever right to test the Lord or is it wrong to test the Lord? Um, th- this is pulling from different parts of, of Scripture. So Isaiah, Malachi, Matthew, this, this passage in, uh, or this verse in, in Malachi in particular says, uh, bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. But then you have other parts, you know, where Moses Moses tests the Lord or, uh, you know, the Lord says, do not test me. And so, again, is, is it a, 
is it ever appropriate to test the Lord? When's it wrong to, what's a wrong motivation for testing the Lord? What, What do you guys think? Well, I think the question rests on the idea of the word test, right? I think people were using the same word for two different concepts. Mm. You know, and therein lies the major issue is that it's the same word that we use test in, the, in our English kind of lexicon here, but it's a different concept. I think in one concept where it says in the Malachi concept, it says test me, it's more along the lines of watch what I'll do when you trust my goodness. You know, it's just contest out of the heart is saying you're you're giving your first fruits, you're giving that as an offering to God because you trust that God will move in miraculous ways. You trust that God is your provision, that God will provide more than you can even imagine. The other idea of testing though is saying, God, prove to me that you're God. Prove to me that you are who you say you are. Prove to me that you're powerful. So there's a two different kind of t- ideas of looking at the word test. One that's you're demanding of God saying, Prove to me, show me something, show me that you're really God, show me that you're really powerful. And the other idea is saying, I trust you, and in that trusting you, I, I, I will see that trust um, be manifest out of the trust what you're doing. is the test. Exactly. Yeah, so one is kind of like ATM, you know, or like one is an ultimatum. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other one is uh, like, I, I trust that this chair is going to hold me up. I don't probably the scariest thing is stools. We have about four stools. <laughs> scariest thing is you know, stools. I mean, sitting on, sorry. Not the scariest <laughs> thing in the universe. The, that's not knowing God. But snakes, clown yeah. stools. But in the He's in the back in, in the back of Waypoint behind the uh, the the stage, there's about four stools. And we inherited these over the years and like two of them are really shaky. You know, and you sit on a stool and the screws are loose, but it, one is trusting God is like God says the stool is firm and you sit on it and you trust him by sitting on it. The other one, it's not an ultimatum like God, you know, give me God. If, if you give me a thousand dollars, then I will do this. And, and, and that's how I try to think about it is it's not an ultimatum. It's, it's God shown his goodness. He's saying that this thing is true. This stool will hold you up. This, if, if you give 10%, to this thing because I've called you to do it. Just do it. I will not, if you give 10%, you're going to be a millionaire. It's give 10% and I'm going to take care of your needs for tomorrow. And that's, that's a beautiful illustration. It's like you say, it's not give 10% and test me and say, well, God, I give 10% worth my million dollars. It's more give 10% because you trust in my goodness, mm-hmm. you know, that you can, that I'll provide for you whatever it is that your needs are. And, and I think that this, this shows up in all things. Like, we're always supposed to trust in the goodness of God. That's the test. The, the test is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in the goodness of God. God has made this promise, but it's a test because you don't see it. The result isn't already there. You know, you're, it's silly for a group of people with no power and no army to march around a city seven times. That's silly. Mm-hmm. Like... Armies should prepare for battle. They shouldn't march around and blow trumpets. But God was like, if you want to win the battle, trust me. If I tell you to do something, do it. And then almost every time from Joshua all the way through Kings is when they trusted God, he told them to do something that was normally militarily not the wisest decision, and they won. And then when they did the military thing that they thought they should have done, they lose. And I think that that's what it means to, to, to trust God is, is to test him that his way is better than our way. His way is higher than our mm-hmm. way. So that, that's kind of where I 
have have come on this. Yeah. So, guys, just to keep it moving, we have uh, about two more questions as we draw to an end in this episode and into our, our podcast for for 2020. Um, and I feel like this this question even kind of gets back to this this earlier one that we were asking as it relates to just understanding different different types of uh, genres in the Bible and, and even uh, some of the theology of it too, of course. But why are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John called the Gospels? This is a good question. I love this question. And I struggle <laughs> with it, but now I get it, and it's awesome. So growing up, I've, I was in different Christian circles, different Protestant circles, and people say, what is the gospel? And you got a couple different answers. The gospel is, is you know, Jesus died for my sins. The gospel is I can go to heaven. The gospel is, you know, it, 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 it'd be in that same realm, but normally it's related to the death of Christ. And, but growing up, even even in my church that gave that answer and they would always say there's four gospels and that confused me because i was like oh i thought the gospel was you know jesus died for my sins so that i could go to heaven forever now you're telling me the gospel is matthew mark luke and john so which is it and if someone asked me today what is the gospel the first answer i have to give them is jesus i'll just say it's jesus and how do we know jesus we know jesus and matthew mark luke and john it's the good news of god manifested and the incarnation, fully God, fully human. So the correct answer is, what is the gospel? It's really Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's Jesus as a person. And in that, we learn how Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promises, going back to Genesis 3 and, and going back to even Genesis 1, Genesis 3, and Genesis 11, the, the promises to Abraham and the, and the extension of the covenant through Moses and to David. But Jesus is it. So why they're called gospels is because each one is giving us the good news. That's my short answer. And it's okay for us as Christians to say and, and that the gospel is Jesus. Because I think that that's a better, for me personally, that's a better answer than Jesus died for my sins so that I can be in heaven. Because it's, it's showing the comprehensiveness of this good news plan. And it adds the spirit and it adds the father. Because Jesus, you know, when you read the gospel of John, you get the plan of Jesus from mm. You know, he was the word that it always existed. So it's it's saying that the gospel is this good news in a person, and it's in a relationship, and it's in God came to be a human. That's the good news. And the result of that is the cross and the resurrection, and I'm saved from my sin. So most people, when they answer, what is the gospel, they're saying more. They're answering the question, what's the result for me personally right now and in, in, in eternity of the, of the good news, but not what is the good news? So that's why I believe that the early church called them the Gospels, and I'm thankful that we continue in that tradition, and I will always—I've even moved toward using Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John as more of my definition of the Gospel, and then, when, and then I say the result of the Gospel is these things, that Paul—normally that's what's fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament letters. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, I'm, I, I can tell that um, you've been thinking a lot about this, Danny. I yeah, I've, I've really, this is like a two or three year just me, me processing this. Just, yeah, we've, just we've had God multiple conversations. This. I mean, this has been another another theological debate that's been going on. And so uh, this could, that, that I know could be a whole another podcast episode. Maybe, maybe we'll explore that sometime in the future. And we're going to be reading a book called The, the Gospel. gospel. Yeah. And it, it yeah. answers a lot of these questions. And it's going to talk about the effects of the gospel. Right, right. And, and how yeah it's a, it's a lived out reality now that, that we get to um, we get to live out as, as people of God and, and how joyous and beautiful and, and attractive and, and loving and kind that is and, and so I'm, I'm excited for that I'm excited for 
um, what God is doing in the life of our church. And, and as we draw to a close here, guys, um, many people throughout, throughout 2020 have probably been asking, wondering, what is God up to? What is God doing in 2020? Why, why are these things happening? Why are we seeing the things that are going on, going on? Why do we, why do we have to live in this reality? Why are we experiencing these things? Um, and so as we, as we draw to a close on this year, you know, what do you, what do you guys think? What hope can we look to? What, 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 what sense can we make of, of 2020 and, and what God has been up to? How, how do you, maybe even what, what has God been teaching you through this year? What has he been revealing to you as you, uh, as you've been walking on this journey and, and trusting the Lord through it? Now, 2020 has been a tough year for all of us, really. And it's tough when you try to answer the question of why has it been tough? Mm-hmm. And you always ask the question, why is there suffering? Why is bad things happening in this world? And we as, as believers, we, we know that suffering exists because of sin and sin in this world and the results of sin and the effects of sin in this world. But we also know that God is still moving in the midst and, and will, can, will and can use uh, even the bad things of this world for his glory. And so on a, on a large scale, it's, it's hard to see any kind of idea and picture of what God is really doing when you're in the midst of anything. Right? Historically, you can look back. Historically, you can look back and see even terrible things, how that God will then even use terrible things to use it for some sorts of good later on. And you see that over and over again throughout history. So I think on a large scale, it's hard to do that. But I think on a personal scale, an individual scale, or even on a church scale, local body scale, it's then more able to we can process then more clearly like, hey, maybe here's what God is doing in me. Here's what God is doing in my my community of believers. Here's what God's doing in my family. So I think that's kind of the question that we need to start asking. I think universally in a worldwide scale, we just it's just near impossible to answer that question, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, how I answer that question is this difficult year of 2020, God has taught me, I think more than ever, how I am not in control of my own life and how that I am not God of the universe, even though I try so hard to be. And that's a good thing. And so I'm really trying to understand and let, try to really can get to this place of true dependence and trust. I've been so self-sufficient feeling in my own life in so many ways. And this, this year has been so good to show me that I am not sufficient in and of myself. I desperately need God to move in all elements of my life. And so I think one thing that I've been learning in this is this kind of this idea of, of I'm not God and I need to stop trying to be God. Eric, do you have any insights? I mean, this is something we've all—it's affected all of us. So I want to—I want to hear what you've been processing in 2020. Yeah, I—you um, know—I I think whenever, whenever, especially with as it relates to COVID, when when some of these things were were really starting to unfold, I think uh, it was—it was easy to wonder, you know, is this like—is this—is this judgment? Is this—and and who who brought this on? Like, is this on the personal level, on the on the national level, the world level? The world this is level. one of the few things that literally <laughs> affects something that's every that person in the world. Everybody's being impacted by, um, and I think for that, I came to the realization: well, I'm I'm not that important that I would have been the cause of of human suffering or just like all, all the pain that's that's going on and just what we've endured this year. And, and so even even in that, I just uh, continue to. Like I don't, I don't want to put, like you're saying, Lawrence. I don't, I don't want to say this is what God has has been doing, and this is what, like God, God's the one who caused this, or He's the one who's who's, uh, He's the one who brought COVID along. Um, I don't, I don't think that's what what's been going on. I don't think that's what's happening. But God is working through it, and I think even, 
in 2020, especially as, as I come to the end of this year, I think what I've been learning especially and, and what God's really been bringing to, uh, bringing more clarity on is, is just the way that I, I see things and, and how little I see things, how little I'm, I'm, I'm able that, that I look at the world around me. I look at all these, all these different factors, these physical, uh, visible factors, and I make judgments on, on those things. And I, I decide, you know, this is what I'm going to do, or this is what I'm going to pursue, or this is, this is why I'm sad. This is why I'm happy. This is why I'm anxious and worried is, is based on what I see in front of me and the predictions I'm making about what might come because of that, what, what might be unfolding. And I think that what God has, has really been teaching me and showing me is that there's more here to be seen, that uh, I, I'm only able to look in this finite way at what's right in front of me, but God is looking at things as they are in totality and, and with expectation of, of knowing how things will be. And I think that that's what the Lord has been inviting me to see more of is, is not, not things as they are, but as, as they will be and as he's bringing them about. And so um, I think, too, it's, it's calling me to, uh, to trust the Lord and, and to, to walk in faith. And, and, and even seeing as the more I read uh, about these different people in the Bible, I think in biblical times, it's a lot easier to see them as so far removed from from modern day and they're archaic and the things they're dealing with but i I think more and more i'm realizing no i i'm dealing with the same things that they're they're dealing with and and i'm dealing with them in a way that makes sense within in my own day and time but the way i the way i relate to the lord and the way that the lord relates to me are very similar and i struggle with the same things that they struggle with and yet God is showing himself to be faithful and loving and kind and, and he's bringing me along that uh, it's it's not that he's unimpressed or, or dissatisfied in, in my lack of understanding but he's he's saying you know as, as I look at these things and I, I bring them to him and say Lord do you see these things he's then saying I do but do you see it this way and he's inviting me to, to look with new eyes and, and so I think that's what uh, what I've been learning in 2020. And for me, I'm, I'm a student of history, and I'm also an efficiency expert. I didn't come up with that title. A few people in my lives that are very close to me have called me that. I just like to think through everything and, and create the most efficient path possible. I'm a little crazy. Like, sometimes I don't even notice it. Like, I'll be like, oh, don't take, if you make this turn, and then you only have to make four right turns on the, the path or whatever. Or this, this will save you one minute. I, I always think in efficiency. So as I've been a pastor, as I've been an international student minister, I always think of like, how can I set up all these structures and systems? And then COVID comes along and wrecks everything. So basically the last four years of my life, I set up systems to, at Waypoint to get people to gather and, and to, for Sunday morning, and then on campus to get p- gatherings of 15 to 20 people, like a couple times a month. And I can't do any of those. So almost like I felt like a failure. I felt like everything I've worked for has been gone. And then I started feeling selfish because I'm like, well, I'm worried about myself, but people are dying and there's and people are struggling and people are lonely and, and COVID has affected the whole world. What God, why am I so focused on myself? So I've just learned a lot about that, that God created me and gave me gifts. But when, when things go disarray or things happen outside of the ordinary or, or the way I plan them, it's easy for me to just fall apart and to just not trust God and just and 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 question God and so I've, personally I just think that I've just said 
God, just show me your goodness. Show me who you are and, 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 and show me that even though you've given me these gifts and you've given me these talents and I've been able to work through all these different things that I can still trust you and, and love you. Did, did I do all those things for the system? Or did I do them for you and your glory? Well, if I'm upset that these aren't happening because I, I spent four years setting them up, then I'm more worried about the system than I am you and your glory. And the next thing I feel like that leads into God taught me about it's It's about people. That his kingdom is about people. And he can work through even hard things. And, he, and he's in it. And he, he didn't pull his people out of the world. And I think sometimes we think, oh, if you're a Christian, you're kind of shielded from the brokenness of the world. But I, I st- studied a little bit the pandemic of 1918 and 1919, almost the same thing that we're going through now. Mm-hmm. Like literally there were debates about wearing masks in public, debates about wearing masks in church. People were getting fined for not going outside with masks. I mean, for people who are complaining now, they're acting like, oh, this is the first time this has ever happened. This is actually the third or fourth time, even in American history, where something at this scale has happened. So for historians, they're not surprised. But for us as Christians, I think sometimes we think, oh, you can just trust God, and then you won't suffer the consequences of the broken world, of the sinful world, of the sickness. And, the, and I think that, that God's just showing me that it's about people. So when people start disagreeing with each other on these different issues, how can I be a non-anxious presence, a person of peace, a person of Christ in my own heart, going back to my first things where I was struggling with you know, how angry I, COVID made me, and how can I just be a person who shows people that God is good, even when the systems are broken. And, 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 and I think COVID shows the whole world that the world is broken. We could create the best financial systems, the best computers, the best everything, and one little virus could shut us all down. And I think it just shows us how fallible we are. And it, it should turn us to God and just say, God, please come and please bring your justice. Please bring your, your peace and please come back, Lord, and make things right and new. And uh, the passage in James that we read as we studied James during COVID, and, and I think that this is the final thing I want to just say, just going back to the scripture. James says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this city, spend a year there, carry on a business, and make money. Why, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it's the Lord's will, we will live or do this or do that. As it is, you boast in, the, in the, your arrogant schemes. Such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And, and I think that this passage in James is really convicting for us as American Christians. Because for so long we boasted in our systems, in our structures, in our finances, even the church. We have this, we have that, we have this much in the bank. And I think J- James is clear to say, boast in Christ. Don't boast in these things. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. No one, none of us could predicted this. And I, and I think that's what God's teaching me. You know, I think for us as a church, 2020 has taught us so much. I think, one, it's shown us that yet again the importance of community and the importance of fellow believers, the importance that we need each other. We're called to do this thing called life together. I've seen our church rally around. Uh, I've seen the Spirit unite our church. I've seen the church come together in even more unity, even in difficult times. So it's been beautiful to see. Um, I've also seen uh, this this time period for our church to kind of nurture more deeper understanding, whether it's through the Bible study reading plan, through our podcast, or this idea of studying the scriptures even together, even finding ways to study scripture together. I've seen God... Um, 
meeting us in the in this time this year. I, it's, I know it's been difficult. I know it's been difficult for so many of us this this year, but I think God is using it and even shaping our church and forming it in such a manner that we're falling deeper in love with Him and His Word. You know, so I thank God even for that. I thank God that that He's using this t- difficult time and shaping and molding even more so the heartbeat of our church. And I pray that He continues to mold um, who we are as, as as a body, as His 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 local church here in this place. And He keeps on molding us to be people who love Him and His Word more and more, and who walk in the power of the Spirit in unity and community together for the sake of advancing His kingdom. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for loving me, for loving my family, and for loving each other during. <laughs> A pandemic. Yeah. Thank you, Lawrence. Yeah, I, I agree. This, You guys have been awesome, and we have been the body of Christ. And let's not let Satan discourage us. Let's focus on the prize, which is Christ. Yeah, I love you guys. I love you, Waypoint Church. And even though it's been a, a difficult 2020, God has showed me so much care and love through all of you. And I look forward to what God's going to do in 2021. Yeah, I agree fully. Um, and even, even this podcast is uh, probably fruit of, of COVID happening. Mm-hmm. And, and so just thankful for what God has already accomplished and, and, and the things that he is doing in through our church and, and yeah I've just been so blessed by this this church family and the way that we love and pursue one another and uh, been thankful for this journey that we've been on even as it's been hard to, to be doing this in 2020 um, but looking forward to continuing the journey in 2021 together so I uh, hope you have a happy new year hope you've enjoyed this this podcast and yeah. uh, we look forward to keep going have a happy new year happy new year happy new year